Hello, everyone. Welcome to the official first episode of Weavy Myths, where we'll be talking about tabletop role-playing games and specifically playing them through the play-by-post format. Nathan is our official host. I'm taking over for the intro. I'm Colin. We also have Alejandro, one of the other moderators. Hey, what's going on, folks? Everyone is a moderator administrator on MythWeavers, which is a play-by-post gaming website, which I'm fairly certain most of you that are listening in right now know, for any of you listening to the recording. It's a great site, myth-weavers.com. Come check it out. We're here to help you bring your game to the next level. As always, we are joined by the Impeccable Text Chat, which members of MythWeavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. Today on the agenda, we've got how to select players for your game, how many players you should pick for your game, and solo games. We'll be talking about these for over the next hour to hour and a half. At the end, we're also going to open the floor to a live question and answer session from the text chat where anyone can ask us anything, myth weavers, gaming, anything else they want to know. So without further ado, Nathan, take it away. All right. That was an excellent intro, by the way. I just want to say much better than what I could do. So the first topic on the agenda is how to select players for your game. So what do you guys do? Do you guys, how do you guys Pick players for your games. Oh man, what a question! How do I pick? Well, you can do it traditionally. Just oh man, there's so many things. Well, I, I will say that it's changed over the years. At the very beginning, I fretted over every single detail, every single backstory. I read everything, which I, I still read. But it, I was kind of became obsessed, obsessed with you know like the perfect game, perfect players. You know, it was it was pretty crazy. Not not too crazy, but it seemed like it at the time. Nowadays, oh man, I just nowadays I go for like themes. I go for the people that will work for me or, or something like. That. I don't exactly go by any specific rubric or, or anything like that. I don't know, Colin. What do you what do you what do you do with your uh, players? Typically, what I'm picking, I usually go by. It's a combination of best fit. What I've been doing lately is I'll also have a pre-game in-character chat so I can kind of see how the players interact with each other with their characters. So it lets me see both how well they write a character and what their play style is, which really helps me kind of narrow things down and choose who I think is going to be the best fit. Okay, so we got a couple different stances. I personally pick based on either a grading rubric that I came up with or I in my most recent game, I just kind of picked whoever I thought was going to work out the best. There wasn't really a character creation process for that, so I just left it as it was. I believe in the notes I'm seeing here, Alejandro actually has a name for your rubric. I'm guessing he added that. It's the Nathan rubric of player demoralization. (laughs) It's... It's not that bad. I promise it's not that bad. It is, I mean, there are several criteria within that, but we'll get to that in a second. So we've already talked about a couple different methods of picking players for your games. First come, first serve, pretty straightforward. You know, you pick the first people that you get. Doesn't always work out in my experience. Sometimes you get players who drop out within a week, and sometimes you get players who drop out never. Colin, do you have any experience with that? I personally have never done a first come, first serve game just because I've had experiences where I'll get a lot of initial interest, and then the first comers... You know, maybe another game catches their interest or something in life takes over and they don't even finish an application. So I personally am not a big fan of first come, first serve, but it's always a option for people depending how they want to set it up. See, I've not DM'd it or GM or whatever, but I have 
been a player in one of those games. And it's just, I guess the basic thing is build it and they will come. If a D, if, you know, a dungeon master or a GM, whatever, if they build that game, with all this, you know, hooks and everything else, and you have players. I mean, you can just like you can you can just go ahead and try it. It works, you know. The persistent players they'll they'll stay. But I I do see again it hasn't been that often, but I do see a lot of players like about seventy percent of just people just fall off. I don't know. Maybe it's because they didn't earn it, or or maybe they I don't know. They just didn't go through all the way. I'll say in my experience. The first-come, first-serve method works really well if it doesn't matter who your players are and if they're super easy to replace. So a while back, I ran a game where I literally didn't care who came and went, and that worked out really well for me. Then we've also, one of the other ones we haven't talked about is random selection. Ah, random selection. Basically, roll a die and pick whoever the die tells you to pick. I have never done this myself. Have you guys? No, not I've at all. I've never done it. I've heard of it, I think, once. I don't know how the game went for the person. But it definitely sounded like an interesting way to shake things up. It all it all depends around the game that it's meant for. You know, if it's meant to turn out these procedural dungeons or, or whatever the, uh, the game may be, yeah, that seems to work to me. I could see it happening in a case where you have a lot of really high-quality applications and you just can't decide between them all. I could see that. And then the other big option, which sounds kind of bad on the surface, is nepotism. And, I mean... If you've been playing with players in the past, you know they're great, you know they're going to stick around. Personally, I've done it many times. It's just, if I'm going to pick players in advance, I'm not going to put, say, six players needed. I'm going to subtract the number of people I've already got handpicked from that number. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with that. If someone, so nepotism, to very briefly recap, is the process of someone comes up with an idea for a game and then they ask you to run it for them and you give them preference in selecting them as a player for the game. I've done this only a couple times and those games in, from my experience, have not really lasted as long as a traditionally applied for game. Well, I mean, as far as advantages, disadvantages, of course, first come, first serve and random are very quick and easy. Personal choice gets a little more complicated. And then you have individuals like Nathan who go all out and make a full grading rubric. And that's definitely the more detailed end of the spectrum. Sure. If you want to get really detailed, you can set up an entire system on which you evaluate characters and figure out which characters are the best out of all of the applications you've received. So the grading rubric. Colin, have you ever used anything like that? Absolutely not. I don't have the patience to do it. You do that, so go for it. All right, that's fine. So I'll talk a little bit about the process I use when I'm creating a very detailed game. So I have several criteria that I grade players on. And yes, it's a literal grade. At the end, I give them a total of how many points they've received. And based on those totals, that's how I determine what characters I'm going to have in my game. And the amount of effort I put into it is actually not as much as you might think, because my entire rubric is designed to be as simple as possible to use. So when I use it, it's literally just check marks. It's, did they do this? Did they do this? Did they do this? 
those types of things. And for each player, it's just a the yes or no answer. Did they do X, Y, Z? And if they did it, they get points. If they didn't do it, they don't get points. And I've had extreme success with that process. For me, it has guaranteed that the people I get are dedicated to the game and they stick around for longer than players you just kind of pick randomly. Which is a fair point to make. Now, one other thing we had down is eliminating players early. So if an idea doesn't necessarily mesh with the game, whether you should come in, kind of tell them, you know, hey, this won't quite work, or if it's something where you just let them create it, and then you know they're going to be an eliminated individual. Nathan, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I'm a big proponent of people, especially GMs and DMs being able to tell their players no. I feel like a lot of DMs and players say yes too much. Like, I understand that you want players for your game and you want to have the best characters possible, but you can't allow a player's character to interfere with the story you plan to tell. So being able to cut someone early and saying, you know what, I just don't think your application is going to work out, either start a new one or maybe this game isn't for you, that is something I would strongly encourage any GM to do. And speaking personally, I personally would like to let the individual know in advance. I don't want someone to go through all the time and effort making something without realizing that because of what they're making, they're not going to have a shot. It just seems... Yeah, absolutely. You want to give them time to either recreate their character or get back to you and say, oh, well, if I make these changes, would it be more okay? It's not an end-all, be-all, just straight up, no, you're not going to be in this game. It's a, you know, I think there might be better paths for you to go down. Absolutely. Now, another thing to consider that kind of meshes neatly into the selecting players, and this one I'm going to kind of toss to the chat, too, how many players do you guys normally accept? I mean, what's the least you accepted, the most you've accepted? What's your average players that you actually want in a game to run? So while we're waiting for Chad to talk about this a little bit, I, depending on the game, usually for D&D, I'll pick between four and seven players. It depends on the game and the style and the encounters I plan to throw at them. But I also think that smaller games are possible. I've seen games that are very tightly knit, two, three players that have stuck around for basically ever. And we are getting some responses now. I've got a three to five from RMB. Tiffany Corda's talking about six, but expecting one or two to drop. Same from, I just want to keep saying Chimi, but four to six because they expect one going to drop. Three to five, five, four to five. So it's looking like the rough average players that people are actually looking for is, oh, hey, I did get Chimi's pronunciation right. So it looks like the average is three to five because those same six are expecting one to two people to drop out. And that's a really good point and segues nicely into our next portion, which is what happens when you lose a player? And we're only going to very briefly cover this. I just want to preface this conversation with because this is a really huge topic and I don't want to go too far into it. Colin, what do you do when a player drops out? Well, it depends how many and I am 
at the more extreme end of the spectrum, I've, in my past couple games, chosen about seven people, anticipating player attrition, but I like to have about six bodies anyway. Given my current game system tends to be a little more brutal, which is stars without number, I kind of like having six players because it gives a better overall survival chance to the party. That makes perfect sense. I usually pick six or seven, generally, based on if I think anyone's going to drop out. Hopefully not, especially if they've been through the whole process of my grading rubric, but you never know. So when I lose a player, I usually do one of three things. I either continue on without them, which is kind of the most natural progression. You lose a player, okay, they're just out, and we'll just keep going. Um, Sometimes I'll go back to applicants that have already applied for the game and were not let in the first time, and they will sometimes agree to to join the game after the fact, after someone has left already. And the last thing that I really don't like to do personally, but I know has worked out for many games in the past, is put up another advertisement and get a fresh wave of applicants to fill the empty spot. Which is not a bad way to do it. I typically post ads the next time I need players. If there's already an established group, though, I'm actually contemplating, depending on the group, so the current game, they just got a ship, the next player's are very likely not going to have to get past me. They're going to have to get past the players as if they were interviewing possible crew. Sure, so it it becomes a process of not only the GM deciding, but also the players who are already in the game figuring out, will this person mesh well with us? For me, that's very much a situational question. It depends on how long the game has been running and whether the remaining group of players is sufficient to carry on. So I've done all three to answer the question without answering the question. (laughs) Appreciate you taking it on that way. I mean, to, to elaborate a little bit more, if the game has only been running for a couple of months, which isn't really that much time in play by post land, typically the, uh, the other applicants are still around and probably interested, so I reach out to them first. But after some indeterminate period of time, which probably for me is in the three to four month time frame, it's probably best to, to go open it up again. So Alejandro, how do you generally handle that? For my own games, for games that I participate in, like say the DM or, or, or something happens. So for players, I try to generally look for new people. Even if there's existing apps and some of them were like were maybe passed over, like generally for my games, unless I already established a connection with the player and say, hey, your call or something like that, I generally pass them over for a reason. Maybe they didn't mesh well with the game. Because again, otherwise I would already establish a connection or something like that. So generally for me, I'd look for a new blood, put an out, another advertisement out or, or something similar like that. And it may also vary from game system to game system. Uh, there, are, there are systems that I run that are somewhat more esoteric. Uh, there aren't that many players out there for them. And so it's likely that the most of the players applied the first time around and maybe I just didn't have enough slots for everybody. Whereas uh, a D&D 3.5 game, there's probably a couple dozen applicants that didn't make the cut for a large variety of reasons, and I wouldn't be necessarily giving them a callback. That is true. That is the luxury of having new blood. Some game systems, you know, the, the player base is already set as is. It's not exactly growing exponentially or, or, or something like that. So yes, it's true. I, for most systems, I guess 3.5 and other popular ones, I have the luxury of, you know, going for new blood. But in instances where, you know, you don't have that, you can easily go back to the players that were in second place or something like that, where... In 
in the running up. Well, and in other cases too. So I actually did have to replace a player several months back. And just to give Zhao Yu a shout out, he didn't get accepted into the game, but he had asked early on if he could stay around as a reader. Said, sure, you know, his application was fine. It just got beat out. Well, you know, I had a void and he was able to jump in. He was willing to make a new character, completely different class, just to fill that void. So there are times, you know, you've got someone ready to go that didn't have anything wrong with their application. They just got beat out because there were too many of one class. Very true, very true. So quick question for everyone. What is the most applications you've ever had for a game ever? I think maybe 50. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's that's probably roughly a good number. I think the second game that I created was a D&D 3.5 game centered around slaying dragons, and I lost track of the number of people that applied to it. It was very large. Well, we've got RMB saying 31, Orpheus saying 26. Don't worry, we're going to make that worse. Tiffany at mid-20s, Liadia is around 20-ish. I personally have had about 40, I think, was the most at any one point, but that game also did a second round of recruiting that got another 35 or 40. I'm apparently just a low achiever because I think my max applications I've ever had to deal with was 12. Really? 12. Well, how about this? What about the lowest you've ever gotten? Zero for me. You've had people where no applicants at all? Yep, I I tried to run a game set in the Dune setting, and I didn't get a single application in the three-week application period. Wow, three weeks, okay. Because I could see some people like, oh, we're going to run this for a week. You know, the ad's open. You know, they're confident in their ability to grab all these people. And I've seen, it's unfortunate, but they get like maybe one or two or not enough for a full party. But yeah, I think... uh I guess mainly because I've stuck to the more popular systems. I've gotten maybe six when I was looking for, I was looking for like, I guess a little bit more variety, but I just happened to get six. And of those six, they were all great, honestly, because they took the time. The setting was weird and it was very interesting. You know, it was, it wasn't the, I guess the, the most popular idea, but still uh, of that idea, I got six, which is, I guess, pretty low. For what I was, uh, I guess I was expecting, not 50, but whatever. I've never, I guess I've only won, what, how many games have you guys won? I've only won about maybe three or four major games. I've run, like, side games, but for things where I put, like, dedication and hours into it, maybe only about three or four in the past couple of years. I think I've run, I'd have to actually check, but I want to say five, maybe six since Smith Weaver's Inception, but I mean, none of them went terribly, terribly long. I was young, I was learning, that sort of thing. I have five that I'm GMing right now, all of which have a longevity of five-plus years. Nice. Very, very nice. That's extremely impressive. I am more quantity than anything. I think I've probably run something along the lines of 20 different games over the time that I've been running games. Oh, in different systems, of course, right? Yeah, absolutely. So Shadowrun, Pathfinder, 5th Edition, all those things. I jump around from system to system depending on what I want to run. I wish I had that time to learn all those systems. I mean, that's why I guess I I stick to the the main main popular ones like 3.5 because I've learned that and there's always a game around and I don't really have to branch out, I guess. Which is, you know, I want to, just time. Anyways, back to the subject. Well, I mean, I think we've pretty well covered that subject. Sure. So now we get to the question of what happens when a person who is running a game drops out. You lose your DM or or GM. What happens then? 
Well, I guess I'm I'm not unique in this case, but I hate when that happens. I hate so much that if I have nothing on my plate, I feel like this is a mistake sometimes. I've I, like of the of what I've done, maybe one game out of the five that I've tried to take over, you know, try to GM, I've actually been successful. But yeah, I would actually step up to the plate and try to continue on because it pains me. I mean, the odds are are very low that someone else would pick it up, whether it's just like this, not the system, but so many posts or, or all this effort into it. It pains me to see all this like effort go to waste. Mm-hmm. So I, I do this often in the few games that I'm actually in where I would try to try to take it over you neither try to piece together what the plot is or make a whole separate plot with the same characters. Shameless plug for the GM Rescue Society over in the GM Workshop Forum. Well, hey, we weren't going to plug you anyway, so... No, I, I completely agree. Losing games, particularly long-running games where your play-by-post isn't exactly a medium where you're going to blaze through six or seven sessions and get an adventure done and everyone feels... Ooh happy you you get invested in it you spend a long time creating a character playing it out and to to have the plug pulled is unfortunate i mean sometimes even you get really invested because the recruitment phase takes a month or a month and a half you know some of the long cases so absolutely that's why i started that business back in 2009 was to uh to promote taking over games and running them and i think two of the five that i'm running right now are actually uh, rescues that i picked up And just to continue your shameless plug for those listening in or those in the chat now that don't know where that's located, that's off of the index page. It's going to be the top post. It's stuck in the GM workshop forum. So if there's a game you don't want to see die, you want to see it get picked up and revived and you're willing to step up and take it or another player's willing to step up and take it, you can go there and Mordai will help you out with that. So out of curiosity, Mordai, as someone who has never really looked at the GM Rescue Society or used it, how exactly does that work? Do you pick randomly or do you have a criteria that a game needs to meet before you pick it up or how does that work? Generally, the, the requirement before we'll consider taking a, uh, a new head GM on is that the head GM either has to voluntarily say that they're stepping down or ghost for two weeks off the site for just not posting in that forum. You know, at that point is basically the the players can put out there, I guess if you call it reverse advertisement, saying, hey, we'd like a new GM for this game because we really want to keep playing. It helps to identify that you have a large group of players that are willing to continue. I mean, if it's just one player, it's unless it was a solo game, you, know, you really kind of need that core support because it's as much on the players as the new GM to to learn what was going on in the game and to mesh the personalities and kind of you know build from there. Certainly not for the faint-hearted, but there's lots of volunteers. I'm I'm actually heartened by that. You know, Tiffany's noting that uh, many of the pickups are from players that were already in the game, and I think it was uh, Andre was saying that that frequently happens. Uh, it certainly happened for me on these two that I'm carrying right now. One of them never got out of the advertisement phase, and the other one was in some sort of solo prologue where the group hadn't come together yet. So those are kind of early examples. The longer ones takes a little bit more meshing of the GM kind of a feeling out process of, hey, here's the ideas I have, and the players say, yeah, I think I can run with the the direction that you want to take this game. And once they come to that mutual handshake, they say, hey, go promote me, and and I go make the magic happen on the back end. Okay, 
Awesome. I will definitely have to keep that in mind in the future because I have had several games where the GM has just disappeared and we've had to shut down the game, unfortunately, but I'll definitely look into that in the future. So have you guys noticed, are there any particular things a GM can do in the event that they drop out? Like sometimes you don't know you're going to drop out, but as a just in case, is there anything a GM can do to make a potential replacement GM make their job easier? I guess notes... I mean, you can always have a, a little outline or just, just something there. You don't have to give away all your secrets, but just something enough to where in the case where you may disappear or something like that and somebody does want to rescue it, they when they get behind that screen and look at it all and everything there, if there's a notes or any kind of little outline or maybe a little plot summary, something like that would be very helpful. For me, I would do that just by myself just to, I don't know, establish, like of course, like in a private thread, but just for my own notes because I like keeping notes uh, on most of my games and it would just be very helpful. <laughs> um, the other possibility too is you can, if the GM vanishes, you're willing to step in and fill it, everyone's good with that, and there are no notes, which is not an uncommon occurrence, you can always do something like a spinoff game. Maybe keep general elements, all the players keep the characters, but either head off in a different direction with the current story or create an entirely new story from the start. Of that one game that I rescued, it only succeeded because we spun it off. The other ones that I tried to continue on the existing storyline, and it was like I wasn't really feeling it because it wasn't really my own story or, or something like that. I didn't make my own, and it just kind of fell off the wayside. It just it didn't really pan out. But that one game that did succeed was because it was like we, we were starting fresh. You know, the characters are still in the same city, same personalities, but something else is on fire. When in doubt, blow it up. Instant tension right there. Boom. Something's on fire. Something's exploding. Perfect. Go, 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 go. Heroes, go over there. Go help them out. Hey, go do your hero thing. Exactly. Which absolutely beats the hell out of. So you're all in this tavern. <laughs> absolutely. Always, always back at that tavern. I think one of the differentiators as to whether it's likely to succeed or not tends to be how much direction the GM was trying to enforce on the plot of the game. The ones that tend to be heavily GM-directed don't tend to fare as well as the ones where the players are really invested in driving the plot. Very true. And sometimes you get games, too, where the GM really had a direction they intended to go, but the players just have a mind of their own. So I'll say that since we have started talking about this topic, I have actually started putting my GM notes in my forums just in case I have to disappear for whatever reason. Smart move. I'm running a sandbox game. I've got no idea which direction the players are going to go, so it's kind of hard to keep notes. Those are the easiest to jump in and take over when the GM is, is reactive. Also very true. Right. I'm easily replaceable, I guess. Oh, Colin, we would never replace you. As Nathan quietly makes notes about replacing me. <laughs> yeah, 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 we won't talk about that thread about uh, finding a new admin. Colin, who was that? We had a Colin here? What? What? <laughs> well, I think we pretty well covered that a bit more in detail than I think we were planning to go, but I think that does it for that particular topic. So the next thing on the docket is solo games, and this is a game where it's just you and the GM. One-on-one, -on -one, you guys drive each other. Have you guys run a solo game? Have you played in a solo game? I've played in a couple solo games. They were run by the same game master, one of those individuals that's great at creating vivid, interactive worlds. Personally, I'm not 
good enough right now. I don't have the time to get dedicate to fleshing a world out enough for a solo game where someone can just explore and go wherever they want right now. Alejandro, Mordor? Yeah, I generally don't apply for those types of games because I like the, like the group dynamic and everything like that, or at least talking off of other people that aren't NPCs. But for the, I think the one solo that I got in and I was in there for like a year, I guess, the, the game lasted. Yeah, it worked real well because we had a really good and competent GM. I will say this wasn't just a pure solo. This was like eight other soloists in this world. We had our own private threads. It was our own each, you know, unique adventure. I think it worked because the premise was really cool. Everyone was a dragon in this world and we would all affect each other, our, you know, our choices and our, our decisions and stuff like that. And yeah, it really worked because again, it was a really competent GM. He had almost all the notes. He had everything at his disposal. So it was not his fault. It was really the uh, other players kind of let it die out. I was like one of the last two people still going until I guess the game eventually just kind of died. But it was one of my favorite games I've ever played because, again, the quickness of posting. I guess you really don't have to be saddled with other characters. I mean, sure, you're talking to NPCs, you're talking to other, you know, people in this world. I don't know, there's just the amount of freedom that you can get and, and choices. I, it was felt very, very, again, freeing because... I could do whatever I wanted at any time, and it was beautiful. And that's why I guess I very I remember that game very fondly because it was a solo game, which is something I never really go for. I think I've run two solo games ever. One was for Rodrigo. He was looking to get a little uh, wizard apprentice action on. That one was pretty fun. And the other one was uh, someone who really, really wanted to play Paladin Adventurer. I think that was also a 3.5 game. The downside to solo is the it's not the lack of character interaction, it's the lack of people. It's very easy for a solo game to die because one person gets overwhelmed with you know, other commitments. There's no, there's no one else you can kind of lean on to fill in that void and keep things going. On the flip side, however, you do get a faster posting rate as long as you and the game master have similar amounts of time. And then it also makes it easier. One of the things I like to do a lot is I tend to play these stealthier characters. Well, it's kind of hard in a party if you're always trying to go for stealth to deal with the part where the barbarian or warrior really just gets tired of waiting. And in solo games, you know, if you're built around stealth, well, you can go and be stealthy. Or if you're charismatic, you can go and sweet talk people. And there's less of a chance of having to worry about, oh, you know, you really want to do this, but everyone else wants to do this. Solo games, there is at least the benefit of things are tailored around your character. Downside, you don't have the party for support. Unless... You have a DM that decides, okay, this particular challenge is not is too difficult for just one person, so here I'll supplement you with a couple NPCs and we'll go from there. That still has the same problem of only two people in the game, but at least it provides the option of the player joining up with some people in this world and then overcoming challenges that they couldn't normally. Plus, it, it really all depends on the premise of, uh, of what the game is. Because sure, a solo game, you're thinking you're all by, my, all by yourself, but the DM can make you a commander of an army or something like that, where you have generals and, you know, all these other lieutenants below you. You have a posse. You have, you know, your group with you where there's always three or four other guys with you. It's just that it's all about, are you going to take the city? Are you going to do this? Or, you know, Again, it depends on the premise. If we're talking, you know, a dungeon crawler all by yourself, sure, it's going to get kind of dicey. Yeah, a solo game to me really needs to be a lot about 
story and character development because if you're just sitting around rolling numbers one-on-one, eh, it doesn't do it for me. One of the things that did get brought up early on when we were all kind of bouncing ideas off of each other planning this was espionage and entry games really do work well for Solo. Yeah, it doesn't have to be specifically spy stuff. It's just something where the, the GM comes to you and says, what do you want your character to do? Or, or B, what is his dreams or something like that. That's a really good sign. And that's something I ask, not just my solo, like if I am running a solo game, but just my players, because I can not tailor it around him, but I know what his hooks are. So for a solo game, that really is much more important in my eyes. So we were talking about it doesn't have to necessarily be spies and stuff. It could also be, hey, my character's a noble. I want to go to this fancy ball and see if I can politic my way into getting what my character wants. Or I can wheedle my way into marrying into the royal family or those types of things. I could have sworn it was you that was bringing up a masquerade as a reference, but I couldn't remember. No, yeah, that was me. I mean, just the concept of like a, a social, what was it, like encounter, you know, or just general politics, intrigue, something that you don't necessarily need to have a group with. Uh, it'd be perfect for solo, whether you're not, ex- again, not exactly a spy or, or any kind of James Bond. You could just be an aristocrat or something like that, working your way, trying to find out a murder or just trying to murder someone. Murder always makes for a fantastic politics game, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it's so integrally tied into politics, so. I've done the intrigue with a duo game. I found that actually worked out really well because the two players could interact with each other, compare notes and the like, and then still head off in different directions, pursue different leads. It's It's been a fruitful challenge. That one's going on right now still, so enjoying it very much. So I have one last thing I want to talk about with solo games, and do you guys have any tips for someone that wants to take an existing adventure path or campaign and adapting it to a solo campaign? Any tips or tricks or suggestions? Mainly, maybe the the structure of it. I love to create my own world and stuff like that, so the fact that you can just have this adventure, and you can always change it. That's that's the beauty of it. I'm playing as a player in one where there's already, it's an adventure path of, of sorts, but the game has been so widely changed by the DM that it's completely unrecognizable. There's been wars and battles. You know, I have not really, I've tried to stay away from the adventure path or whatever, from the actual, you know, book or whatever, but I can tell that there's been so many changes and it's, and it's the GM tailoring it to us, to his play style. So he's taking the existing ideas and making it his own and improving on it, which Again, that's as long as it's a, a backbone or um, you know an outline, it's great. But going word for word, I, I guess I'm not a fan. I've never done it myself either. On one good point that got brought up in the chat is for solo games, make it more role play oriented than mechanics oriented. So keep it more focused on the story instead of roll this, roll this, roll this. I would definitely agree with that. As someone who's currently going through the process of converting a adventure path for a solo game. I've noticed that there's a lot of sections where it says people attack immediately, and that's not only not true in real life, that's also just not something that tends to happen in in RPG games, or it shouldn't. So I've been having to rewrite some of those encounters to make it so that there's options for the player to talk their way out of it, or to sneak by if that's the kind of style they want to do. Well then, Nathan, I believe it's time to move on to your little section. All right. So, 
Before we move on to the question and answer segment, we want to introduce something new. Every week, we're going to be picking a game of the week that everyone should take a look at because they're always going to be totally awesome, I promise. This week's game of the week is Romance of the Three Kingdoms, run by Orpheus. Romance of the Three Kingdoms is a Pathfinder game that focuses on the history of the Three Kingdoms, an era in Chinese history. This game is going to take an alternate history approach to that idea, and will rewrite the story of that time period with a twist that only Pathfinder can provide. Orpheus has spent a lot of time adapting Pathfinder to this game, and it looks like it's going to be an interesting one. Personally... I love the idea that the characters are going to be Gestalt, which opens up so many options for truly heroic characters. Do you guys have anything you want to add about this game before we move on? Well, looking just looking at the ad and going back to you, last week we were talking about ad layout and all that. I do appreciate how well laid out the ad is, how well things are grouped. I know we examined some lesser games like that one Nathan is running. And, you know, it's nice to see well-organized ads with pretty pictures. Well, it's also informative. It's um, appealing. I, I don't know if, if I had time. You know, and the and the patience uh, to sit down and actually write something, I'd put an application. It kind of pulls me in. All right. Well, once again, the game of the week this week is Romance of the Three Kingdoms by Orpheus. The application process for this game is set to close on June 5th, so make sure you get those applications in before June 5th. I'll post the link to that game in the text chat, and the link will be available in the relevant link section when the podcast goes live on SoundCloud in the forum thread. All right, well, going from that, I think we're on to, I know it's my favorite part, I think it's your guys' favorite part, to the question-answer segment. The best part. Absolutely. So, ask us your questions. Anything you want to know, you can ask about games, you can ask about systems, you can ask about Mythweavers, you can ask about us, within reason. So, ask your questions. Let us know what's going on. Nathan loves talking about himself. Oh, come on. <laughs> I just like the sound of my own voice. This can be about uh, existing topics we've talked about, you know, early, earlier on that uh, maybe got ignored. That uh, We'll gladly go back and do what we can. Sure. So if you think we missed something, please make sure to point that out and we will talk about it happily. Chimi, I cannot tell you what class your dude is. I'm sorry. Now, Nathan, you do have two other inquiries, too. People want to know more about Grok. They they always want to know more about Grok. Yes, who is this Grok and where can I find him? He seems so cool. So, for those of you that don't know, Grok the Dwarf Stomper, or is it Smasher? Did we ever officially choose, is it Stomper or Smasher? Dwarf Stomper. Okay, so Grok the Dwarf Stomper is the unofficial mascot of the Weaving Myths podcast. And last time we talked about his quest to retrieve his favorite sword and avenge the death of Grokola. Nathan is really eager to get some fan art up for Grok for the next webcast. You just you just couldn't resist, could you? So people in chat are saying that I pronounced Gestalt wrong. My apologies. Apparently it's Gestalt, not Gestalt. Sorry. I'll remember that for the future. I feel like we need Jeopardy music or something while people type. I could sing, but I'm pretty sure we don't want that. Oh, the goal is to get more listeners, Nathan, not scare the current ones away. <laughs> Mick the Rogue, it does not have to be play-by-post focused. You can ask just about anything you want. Like Nathan's love life. Very healthy. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Someone in chat has just linked the Jeopardy theme song. Thank you, Jacob. Ever helpful. 
All right. Well, while we are waiting on some questions, I have a question for you guys. What has been your favorite game on Mythweavers ever? Alejandro, Colin? Well, my favorite game was a Star Wars game where the Game Master threw in ungodly amounts of hard sci-fi and it somehow worked. And I also had the character that just would not die no matter how well he tried to kill me. And by the end, he was most certainly trying to kill me within the game mechanics. Alejandro? I think it was um, a 3.5 drow game where just being a drow in the first place, the politics, the house politics, first of all. I was a priestess and we had a traitor in the realm. We had to do a job. So it was a priestess. I was actually in charge of the group. So I had underlings and I had people who plotted to kill me, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. We had to an actual other character. He didn't want to be part of the group. He wanted to be an outsider. So he was a mercenary cap. So if I'm trying to remember all this, because this was maybe four years ago, he threw some DM fiat, but uh, he had become a mercenary captain and he was like forced to come with us. This was a, a male. I don't know if you know about drow and their society, but they're... Um, Matriarchal. Yep. So, uh, yes. So it's mainly run by females. Uh, my character was a, a drow female. This male character, this drow was very, he was very snippy. He was very, I guess, very rude. So Mick the Rogue asks, so how do you deal with a problem where a player constantly leaves and tries to play solo? He also tends to diminish other characters' ideas and is generally a spotlight hog. It's a really good question, actually. How do you deal with a spotlight hog? We'll toss that on the list. So we'll go in-depth, Mick, on dealing with various types of players because there's lengthy discussions we can go on into on all various types of players. And he also put down it's more complicated because that individual is in rotation as the dungeon master. Is there a way to save feelings or do we have to be cruel to be kind? I think there's always a nice way to phrase everything with enough flowery language, that is. So just to very briefly answer the question, the player has to realize that it's not just them playing the game. If it's a solo game, then yeah, it is definitely all about them, and they're free to be as selfish as they want. But in a team effort where you have six or seven players, you really have to try to convey to them that, hey, you know, maybe it's not always about you. So the way I like to do this is I like to put things to a vote. I don't like to just listen to my players and take whichever opinion I hear first. I like to ask all of my players, hey, what does everybody think we should do? Get all the options and then vote on it. And that not only encourages teamwork, but it also makes sure that the spotlight stays on the entire party rather than that one player. And then in the event that an individual is just stubborn and keeps wanting things their own way, well, I'm always more in favor of the direct approach. I don't like to sugarcoat things, sometimes there's not a great way to be gentle about things. If someone's being that much of an issue, sometimes you just kind of have to sit them down and say, look, it's not really working out the way you want to play, and we're just having issues with the way you run the games, too. It's a party decision, really. It's something that should be discussed as a group instead of one person trying to 
run things, either controlling the game or one person saying, hey, we don't want you here. It should be a group discussion. Absolutely. And Orpheus, I see your question. We're going to come to it in just a second, but Ikul, Ikul, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, but Ikul, follows up with, does that not slow down the game? And Mick the Rogue, I should probably clarify, was asking specifically about in-real-life games, where you're all sitting at the same table. And from what I've experienced, just very quickly asking my players to take a poll then it doesn't slow anything down. All right, so our next question is from Orpheus, and Orpheus wants to know how flexible and inflexible should you be with rules that you set, like class restrictions and race restrictions? Players always ask for exceptions. When should you hold back? And when should you buckle? So that's a tough one to answer succinctly. I'm going to try, unless... Colin, Alejandro, do you guys have any thoughts on this real quick? I'll take this one if you want. Go for it. In my experience, there's always someone in every game who wants to be different than what you set out as the requirements. And kind of the litmus test that I set for myself is, can I think of three ways that they'll make the game better right off the top of my head just by looking at their character application in whatever state it is and thinking about the game that I want to run? If I can't think of three things off the top of my head that will make the game more fun, it's probably never going to work. And at that point, I tend to be relatively inflexible and say, nope, not going to take it, not even going to look at it, because it's also, on the opposite side of the coin, not fair to string them along, saying, okay, yep, you can keep working on that, you can keep working on that, and then get to the end a couple weeks later and say, no, I was never really considering you. All right, so we have another question from Tiffany, and Tiffany asks, Planning is always a pain in play-by-post. Any tricks you have for speeding things up? I'm not a good person to ask about planning because I am very prone to winging it, mostly because a lot of my experience with my real-life groups, they go off the railroad tracks left and right. I'm so used to having to adapt that I don't plan too far in advance. So I plan pretty much all of my games in advance, and unfortunately, even when you're playing a face-to-face game where you all sit down at the same table, planning is still 90% of what I do. An actual game session is the other 10%. So the best thing I can suggest is find tools you can use to make the process faster, whether it's a character generator program or a PDF of monsters that you can print out and have them prepared. Or in the case of play-by-post, you can kind of copy all of that information into your forum So if you'd use a character generator, then you just copy and paste, and boom, it's all there for you. And that, I have found, speeds up the entire process immensely. Rather than spending three or four days planning the initial stages of a game, I spend maybe a couple hours. So the same is true of NPCs, enemies, those types of things. If you have a program that lets you keep track of what your characters are fighting, the initiative order, those types of things, that makes the entire process much smoother. We get a question from Orpheus on how important is a nice-looking and well-written game ad. It's extremely important. So important that the episode zero of Weaving Myths was pretty much entirely dedicated to how to write a good advertisement. I will say, too, though, as far as ad quality and how in-depth it is and how pretty it looks, when you start getting into the more niche systems, the importance does 
drop a little bit. Not saying it shouldn't still look good and still be well written and organized, but when you get into the niche systems, you tend to get people that are happy to see the system come up at all and are going to be a little bit more forgiving on how the ad looks versus something like D&D 3.5, D&D 5e, or Pathfinder, you have a lot of games being advertised. So you're competing with other game masters for the players. And to add on to that a little bit, it's it's my opinion that a well-written ad can overcome some of the bias that players may have towards a newer GM to the site. Certainly when I came to the site back in 2009, having no reputation anywhere, I got, I think, six applicants for my D&D 3.5 game, even with a well-written ad, partly because I had three posts. It was a post in introductions and the uh, a post in the game forum and the, the advertisement itself. But I've definitely seen games with newer GMs in more recent years where people are willing to take a chance on something that looks like it's going to be a good tale or a good group, whereas it's extremely brief and maybe lacking on some of the key details, uh, it's not going to garner nearly as much interest. All right, so Tiffany has a follow-up question to their earlier question, and they want to know, what about players planning in the game? So what they're talking about is when the players have to stop and talk about what they're going to do next, and it slows things down to a crawl. How do we accommodate that? Is there a time limit that we can set, or is it just... Let them figure it out. I was just going to say, I give them five days and then I set something on fire. That is not a bad way to approach it. So as someone who has run several Shadowrun games, this is the number one cause of Shadowrun game death. And you have to eventually say, okay, enough is enough. And in the specific case of Shadowrun games, I usually have the Mr. Johnson come back and say, oh, I've changed the deadline. You guys have to do it right now. Or something along those lines. Like Mordai said, or Mordai said, you basically have to blow something up to get them moving, to get them to get out of the planning phase, because there's only so much planning you can do. Eventually, they have to improvise some part of it. Some Shadowrun players want to plan the entire thing from start to finish, but you really can't do that in any role-playing game. There just always has to be some way to force the party back on track. If you let them go too long, the game is going to die as people just burn out waiting. And Jacob says, so force their hand rather than let them take two weeks planning out their next move. Well, if the party is, say, getting ready to go into a room in a game, it's kind of ridiculous to think of them standing there for 20 minutes discussing the best way to attack the room when they're about to attack the room. So, you know, if they spend too much time talking, well, maybe people come out of the room and attack them because they heard them. Would you give them, a, like, a deadline? Would you say, like, like real lifetime, you got a day to figure this out instead of two weeks, which it'll eventually go to? Personally, no, just because I'm one of those game masters. I kind of think it's funny when they take too long and I blindside them. But people I typically get as players expect something like that. I'm more okay with setting a deadline, but I wouldn't give them just one day. Real life does happen, so you got to give them more time than that, especially with a play-by-post format. So I like to give my players three or four days just to make sure that everyone has a chance to at least post once. So Mick the Rogue asks... Do you think a good ad directly correlates to a good GM? No. No, no. Absolutely not. Just because they can write a beautiful ad does not mean the game's going to go well, but the reverse can be true as well. Not just well-written, but uh, advertisements which are extremely long can sometimes be a red flag of 
the GM being very invested in their vision for their setting and it won't mesh well when a bunch of players come in and start doing unexpected things. And Orpheus, Orpheus is following that up with a bad advertisement is a hell of a turnoff though, right? And it absolutely can be. If it's a rough ad, it's going to be really hard to get people interested in the game, even if you're one of the greatest game masters on the site. I have a hard time willing myself to apply for a game with an advertisement that has poor English. For me, though, it's not necessarily a, a, a turnoff. If it has, like, the very basic bullet points, like, hey, this is your, this is the mission, this is what you guys gotta do, I'm looking for, you know, this many people. As long as it keeps those kind of bits in there, and it's not just like, hey, sign up for my game, then I, I don't mind. You know, it doesn't have to be fancy, it doesn't really need to have photos, um, as long as it has enough to, to hook me in. Maybe, you know, just some, some little hook, or just, you know, hey, you gotta defeat a dragon. So, okay, this dragon, Pretty much killed, you know, the entire party and all your loved ones or something like that and you're raised from the dead or something like that. You know, just a little hook. It doesn't have to be specifically that. If he gives me that, that's a good ad. Something to hook me in. All right. Orpheus asks, what is a concept for a game that you've wanted to run but don't feel up for it currently? Well, I have a game that I've been wanting to run for a really long time, but I've never found the time for it. And it's a freeform modern day alien invasion game where the players are super awesome heroes that can basically do anything they want, and hence the reason for Freeform. And I would want to be able to participate directly with the story of that, and so it wouldn't really have a GM or a Dungeon Master, but it would be all of us working together to build a story and defeat the alien invasion. Well, I actually tried to run this game, and I just did not have enough time to actually commit to it. But it, it's it's an idea that I've always wanted to run. This is in 3.5, or it could be for any system, but all I wanted to do was just get my players, and they're generally higher level, or it could be actually, you know, low fantasy or whatnot. But what I would love for them to, to do is for just them to have power, for them to rule a kingdom, to have people under them that care for them, or they they need the PCs to to run everything or something like that. They have people under them and everything like that. And I just, I don't know, I guess it would be more of a sandbox game. Allow me to, to do a lot of different plot lines and stuff like that. Just to just see what they would react. Because I run so many games where it's not railroading or not like a set path. I just got, I'm getting kind of sick of just, you know, good guys beating bad guys. I just want just to give these people power and see if, They'll corrupt each other if they'll abuse it, if they'll do the right thing, and just to see what they would do. I have tried, and it did, I guess, because again, there's a lot of pieces in that, a lot of spinning plates in that kind of concept, and I've tried it once, and I guess I didn't have enough, really, enough time to commit to it. Let me know when you're going to run that game, because sign me up. Oh man. <laughs> And the concept was really cool, too. Uh, I had it to where the other worlds could not connect to this world. So the astral plane had actually been cut off. So summons really, like, had never really worked before. And teleportation wasn't working. So it was a very, I guess, low-tech in the sense that, you know, the other worlds weren't connected. And so my entire hook to this is a star shooting from the sky. And it turns out it's an airship. And it turns out that now they have access to all this technology and all this, and now they've actually learned magic and how to connect to the astral plane. Turns out there was like this whole plot series why they couldn't connect. So now we have these heroes who have access now to teleportation, who has an airship that can do all this stuff. I gave them all these really cool ideas, hooks, and, and ways to 
further their empire, so it will. And I really like that. But again, it just didn't really pan out. One day, though, I'll, I'll bring it back. We've got a steampunk heist game and a soft sci-fi edge of the beginning of Faster Than Light travel game that I've tried to run a couple times and just it's petered out. They're on my back burner to come back at some point when I'm not jamming five other games. I love the concept of heist jobs. I mean, just it's so simple. You know what you're getting. No matter what setting it is in, whether it's cyberpunk or, you know, Stone Age, that, if I would see something like an ad for that, I would sign up in heart. I ran it in Rysis last time, and I might do that again. So, Colin, any game ideas that you want to run but just haven't panned out yet? Well, I'm similar with the desire to run something that's more along the base building lines. Give the players power, position, something, and just ready go. See what happens, shape the world around their decisions. But, I mean, free time, the usual problems present. Well, I have a question for you guys. Why would you want to play or create these games? Like, for me, I guess it's the... I'm getting a little sick of the standard kind of concept of, you know, Dungeons and Dragons in a sense. You know, let's go kill this dragon. Okay. So I'd like to change it up and, you know, put them where... They have to stay in a, generally in, a, in a, a location, whether it's a kingdom, and kind of restrict them there. And it also allows for politics play, which, you know, again, killing a dragon, not exactly, you know, talking to a politics or whatnot. But I, I like it because it's different. It's out of my comfort zone. It's something, you know, I haven't really played or DM'd. And it's, uh, I think that's a very exciting thing for me to, to run. That's why I desire to play something like that. But what about you guys? I mean, the heist or, or anything else, what are your motivations what draws you to these games? Well, I think mostly I'm just a sadist or a masochist or both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the very first role-playing game I ever played was a freeform alien invasion, invasion style game. And I've always had a soft spot for that style ever since. And that's something kind of, it's, I'm nostalgic for it. I would love to be able to bring that to Mythweavers and have something similar happen. Orpheus, as much as I'd love to uh, solve the debate of Coke versus Pepsi, we don't need a holy war. There's no holy war. It's Coke. No, no, it, it's clearly Pepsi. Mountain Dew. Yeah, there we go, Mick. You got the right answer. Wait, no, isn't it Dr. Pepper? Because it's neutral. It's not on either side. Yep, clearly Dr. Pepper. I would say Fago Rock and Rye, but most of you are probably unfamiliar with Fago. Woo! I drink that any day. Although it's not as good now that they've substituted out some of the sugar. I think the sugar came back. Anxiously await my trip back to the Midwest. Yes, Jojo. Fago Rock and Rye. If you find it, you must get it. All right. I think we have one time for one more question. Just one more. So let's let's try to end on a good note. Give us your best question. Just because you said that, we're going to get three, four, maybe more questions all at once. Of course we are. That's kind of the point. <laughs> all right, this is a good one. Mick the Rogue wants to know, how many dwarfs could Grok stomp in a standard D&D &D round? The answer is as many dwarfs as are there. Because you see, Grok has now become a GM PC and he can do anything. Exactly. He does whatever he needs to do for the sake of getting his favorite sword back. So what system is he in? What level is he at? Is he a, a god or is he just like a commoner? These are the important questions. I would say he's probably built using either Pathfinder or 3.5. So you're saying a character sheet is pending from you. I did not say that at all. And make the rogue points out and a more detailed story. You got the backstory and everything. That... 
might be coming. All right. The Unspeakable did ask Marvel or DC. Any we're, thoughts? We're, why are we going there? That no, no. Speaking of holy wars, ay ay ay. It's because the answer's Marvel. Uh, I'm kind of with Alejandro on this. It will start a war. And as much as I like watching the world burn out, want to be the one that starts burning it. Well, I think that is all the time we have for questions tonight. I want to thank everyone so much for joining us today. It's been a blast. and We appreciate all the comments and questions from the text chat, as always. I'm Nathan. I've been joined by Colin and Alejandro. And, surprise, special guest Mordai joined us. Thanks for listening. And keep on weaving those myths.